The year is 376 CE, summer. A massive number of Goths arrived at the Danube, the once long-standing frontier of the Roman Empire. For more than a century, the Goths had been in some way or another exposed to the Romans. If it's through fighting, trading, on occasion, the Roman would recruit the Goths as soldiers to serve them in faraway places such as Syria and Palestine. When the Goths came to the borders of the Roman Empire, they were not coming in as invaders, nor were they planning to take over, but rather they came as refugees and migrants. They were running for their lives from their settlements. The Goths requested permission to enter the Eastern Roman borders, and their request was granted by the Roman Emperor Valiens. Many did stay in the provinces assigned to them. This eventually led to food shortages, and many of the Goths began to starve resulting in many of them to sell their children into slavery for dog meat. This led to a rebellion by the migrant Goths, leading to an assault on the city of Mercanopole, leading to the death of Alvivius, a Gothic king. This kicked off a series of battles such as the battles of Adrianople, where Emperor Valiens would eventually fall. This would eventually begin the downfall of Rome. But what led to this migration of the Goths to the border of Rome, leaving behind their homes and livelihoods? What brought Goths into the conflicts with the Romans? On today's episode on the conversation before the world ends, We'll be looking at the boogeyman of the era, the Huns, who led the Goths into Rome, who would eventually kickstart the downfall of Rome. Or did they? As we go through the mysterious origins and eventual dissolution of the Huns. come by the hands of the goths their music their style has brought down our culture <laughs> i'm your host kareem and i'm Eamon. and welcome to tonight's episode so aim welcome back thank you aim so today we'll be going to the roman empire or at least the tail end of the roman empire a very pivotal era. Yeah, of course, the downfall of Rome, and I think the downfall of Rome happened on three stages. There was like before the split, and then the fall of the Western Roman Empire, the Constantinople still controlled, and then eventually the fall of the Holy Roman Empire. Yeah. So we'll be looking at the middle stage, right? Before we start, a disclaimer, we're going to talk about the Huns. Of course. So, of course, we're going to have to bring up Attila. Of course, Attila the Hun. Attila the Hun. Classic. So there's going to be a lot of descriptions of violence and brutality mm-hmm. uh references of massacre i think I'm, I'm a tinge of misogyny too i mean a tinge probably yeah and um unfortunately there's going to be also maybe references to the metal core band attila attila oh never heard of them never heard of them okay so <laughs> we won't have any references oh, to attila yeah. throughout no the... no okay. of course not yeah, yeah. If that's the case okay never heard so of you guys heard yeah. it that Eamon will not make any references to attila to attila the band clearly, clearly yeah <laughs> of course so what do you know about the huns uh not not much to be honest it's one of those ones that uh i do know that they existed they they existed and they were kind of like a military force akin to the mongolians yes exactly so i always associate the huns with the like similar to mongolians Mm -hmm. and attila the hun being the leader of them 
And of course, Teledahan being like one of history's biggest, biggest like um, boogeyman, like akin to Genghis Khan vibes. Yeah. I do know that stuff, but in terms of the actual details, not not so much, to be frank. Yeah, but I do know that they've caused a lot of pillaging, a lot of massacres, a lot of attacks, mm-hmm. and ruthless war mentality. Yeah. So that's interesting because what we know about the Huns is that we don't know a lot about the Huns. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing is, the most of the information we get from the Huns is from Roman writers writing about the Huns during that period. So there's going to be a lot of agitprop against the Huns. Uh, at the same time, the Huns were not, like, they didn't have any form of proper literacy. So they weren't very sophisticated to, 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 note, to not, note down their... I don't know, do you put literacy with sophistication? You have to read and write to be sophisticated? Uh, well, let's read the meaning of sophistication to know. Okay, but, but as you're doing it, yeah. So the Huns did not leave any written record. They kind of lived. Uh, they were. I want. They're not even nomadic. They were kind of uh, semi-nomadic. They herded a lot of cattle and sheep and stuff like that, but they weren't farmers, and they didn't have a proper civilization, like what the Romans would describe as civilization. Hence, we have this idea of nomadic barbarians. Mm-hmm. The term barbarians, by the way, was coined by the Greeks. It means anyone who isn't greek so the barbarians was a thrown to anyone who wasn't greek eventually mm-hmm. with time it became to anyone who wasn't civilized since greece was quote unquote the pinnacle of civilization true uh, um, just a quick drop back so mm-hmm. sophistication is so the lack of sophistication is simplicity right so is literally is literacy adds a complication to someone makes someone more complicated or developed i think so i think so okay. so i think literacy is a component of sophistication so guys what do you think yeah that's We're, just, we'll just leave it out there so, to kick things off, who were the Huns? Okay, are you ready? And, yeah. The Huns were a nomadic pastoral tribe, mm-hmm. meaning they were prominently focused on cattle herding. Okay, pastor makes sense. Yeah, they were prominent in the 4th and 5th century CE, but whose origins is a series of ongoing debates and theories, right? Mm-hmm. But we know they came from somewhere between the eastern edge of the Altai Mountains and the Caspian Sea, around where... Modern day, if you look in the map, it would be modern day Kazakhstan. Okay. Uh, they were first mentioned so by... pretty the, east. Yeah. Yeah. So Kazakhstan up north, like around the eastern steppe where mm-hmm. Mongolia, Kazakhstan yeah. and that area is. They were first mentioned by the historian Tacitus in 91 CE as having been resided, uh, resided around sorry, the Caspian Sea. But that's all we know. The Huns at the time were also considered a footnote in history during the first 4th century. But of course, in times, things will change as the Huns became one of the primary contributors to the downfall of Rome. So the, the Huns ruled that area? So the Huns were... So modern uh, pastime Kazakhstan was their area? Yeah. So around okay. that region, they were like just like drifting around there. Okay, but they I didn't own land. They didn't have their own system, any of that. They were just a tribe almost. Nomadic tribe, like kind of like the Bedouin here. They okay. just go from one place with another with their herd. Okay, got you. Over time, th- this will change and they'll become one of the primary contributors to the downfall of Rome, so to speak, which started when they brutally invaded regions around the empire. Which created something as we Wait, know. Are, are we jumping the gun? No, no. Okay. Go back. They will start something called the Great Migration, also known as the Wandering of Nations, between 376 to 476 CE. Did the term Great Migration come from that, or is that just a general term? Uh, so there's two famous Great Migrations. Moses? Um, well, is that considered like, no, I'm just saying that phrase itself. So I think that was the first time it was mentioned was during the Romans. Okay. Um, I'm not sure if Moses was considered the Great Migration or the Exodus. Oh, yeah, it is the Exodus. Um, 
And the second most popular great migration, of course, seeing that it's fitting, it's uh, February, is the African-Americans from the South to the North. But those are the two common phrases for so if someone says great migration. Usually, to, you either think, the Huns or this? Oh, yeah. So the, those two usually come to mind in the mind of historians, either the African-American migration after Because you do Civil hear War. a lot of, uh, especially in metal songs, like the great migration, the great migration. That's most likely to do with the Huns or the, uh, the Goths, sorry, you know? I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, because you got Cult of Loon and all that, too. They use the great migration. But then maybe the great migration of animals. Could that be another form of great migration? No, I'll look. The, I'll look into the, that as we're going. <laughs> anyway, go so ahead. like I said, so the origins of the Huns has been a series of ongoing debate, right? Mm-hmm. So, is there any concrete fact, or what is the most probable origin point? Well, do we have one. So, in attempting to locate the origins of the Huns, scholars since the 1700s have speculated that they might have been descendants from a more elusive and mysterious. Jian people who resided in the northern borders of China uh, and would frequently clash with the Han Dynasty, mm-hmm. a future topic for sure, uh, from the year 202 to 220, 220 CE. They were considered a nomadic mountaineer warriors who were skilled in using bows and arrows and implemented some kind of proto or uh, guerrilla warfare in attacking the Chinese. So despite no clear consensus on the Jian Han link, Historian Christopher Kelly, who we're going to be using a lot for this, interprets the attempt to link the Xi'an Drew with the Huns as stemming from a desire not to only locate a definitive locale for the Hunnic people, but also to define the struggle between the Huns and Romans as some kind of battle between the noble West and the barbaric East. Uh, Kelly would, would suggest, and I quote, For some writers, connecting the Xi'an Drew and the Huns were a part of a wider project of understanding history as a fight to preserve civilizations against an ever-present oriental threat. The Huns were a warning from history. With their Chinese credentials established, their attacks on the Roman Empire could be presented as some kind of part of an inevitable cycle of conflict between East and West. Would you say that the Huns, do you think they were encouraged to move that way as a form from the Chinese to be like, go destroy Rome? So we'll get to that, mm-hmm. like the why the Huns uh, decided, decided to, go. to go that way. Because then why didn't they go east? Exactly. But um, so one it's, of it's the, crazy just to so, think how the West and China always beef. Yeah. So that's the point. So K- Kelly is saying that historians attempt to say that, oh, their origins are Chinese roots. It's just a way for that create that east-west war. That's that been, rivalry that's always... But that rivalry has always existed, huh? And it's interesting because then like also you have, for instance, like so you have the east-west, right? And then when the Islamic empire would rise up, it will also be like a east-west battle kind of, you know? I yeah, mean? because west then was central. Central. And then you have... They always say the origins of the west was Egypt and Greece yeah, yeah. and whatnot. Yeah. And then you have eventually, if you want to think about it, then when you get to the Cold War... It's, again, another division of East, East versus West. West, you know what I mean? Yeah. And today, again, we're going through a cultural it, war between the East and the West. And it's always something else. Now it's production-wise. Back then it was cultural. One time it's political, religious. It's interesting. Yeah. Exactly. So an understanding of the Jean Drew changed significantly in the 1930s with the publication of bronze artifacts from the Ordos Desert in Inner Mongolia, west of the Great Wall. Oh, yeah. Uh, so... To go a bit off tangent, the Great Wall was built to block off the Huns or to block off the uh, the Jian Zhu, who were fighting with the northern uh, China with the in the Chinese border. Mm-hmm. So the tribes that formed the northern part of China, the Great Wall was built to fend off these people. Um, if you wanted to know, like, why okay. the Great Wall of China was built, um, a lot of relevance in this period. Yeah, these demonstrated a striking difference between the arts of the Jian Zhu and the Huns. They found bronze artifacts that belonged to the Jian Zhu, 
Mm-hmm. And they notice that it differs, it differs a lot from the artifacts they would find from the Huns. Not that one object found in Eastern Europe dating from the 4th and 5th century AD is decorated with beautiful stylized animals and mythical creatures that the Jian Zhu would design their pottery with. So from ancient writers though, the origins of the Huns were pretty simple. Hey, Watson. So for ancient writers, the origins of the Huns were simple. There were evil beasts who emerged from some kind of wilderness to cause chaos on the civilized world. Amineus, Roman historian and soldier, would describe them as the describe the Huns as a nation that surpasses all other barbarians. And though do just bear the likeness of men, they are so little in advanced in civilization. They make no use of fire. They don't prepare food. They feed upon roots which they find and the half raw flesh of any animal. Jord- Jordanis will go on or Jordans, Jordanis. Let's just say that Jordanis. No, he's Roman. So then Jordan. Jordan. <laughs> Jordanis would go. Jordan. <laughs> Jordanes. Jordanes. Go on say. <laughs> Jordanes goes on to uh, know Keep that the Oklahoma fans happy. Was it Oklahoma? Uh, Kansas. Kansas. Sorry. Jordanes goes on to note that the Huns were uh, were given birth to by witches. So. That was the explanation to the historians. Like, where were the Huns from? Witches. Born from witches. Uh, mating with demons. Damn. Damn! Who had no skills in art and only contacted with civilizations when they needed, when one of their hunters was pursuing an animal and came upon a village through the other, through the other side of a swamp. So this is interesting, by the way. There was a prevalent theories on how the Huns found the Western world. Quote, unquote, the Western mm-hmm. world. One of the farmers, one of like the herders, was chasing one of his cattle, and the cattle made his way through a swamp. And he, from the swamp, he found land to the west. And then he ran back and told, told everyone. the everyone. That was the prevailing theory. There was another theory that a hunter was trying to catch one of his uh, was so trying was to catch a deal, a deer, a deal, a deer, a truck tank. Yeah, he was trying to catch a deal and yeah. moved west. Percent <laughs> equity. <laughs> he tried to catch a deer. Yeah. And when the deer fled through a swamp, he found that there was lands to so the west. It was just pure nomadic like yeah, but that's, migration. That's a theory. But uh, we'll again come to the theories at the end. Mm-hmm. So Theory. So part two, the contact of the Huns and the Romans. So one thing we know for certain is that the Huns, they moved in such a speed that they successfully invaded settlements in quick succession. You know what I mean? It was yeah. drive-bys after drive-bys after drive-bys. Uh, and this was exemplified best by their conquest of what is now considered Hungary. Again, Hungary, the Huns, will come back to that at the end. Cool, cool. By 370 CE, they conquered Alans. By 376 CE, they pushed out the Visigoths into the Roman Empire and they conquered the Cockalands. And when they conquered, they settled and had their own system. They would, they would either take over the settlement and just station there, or they would just pillage and continue. Okay, and would you are you going to go into the structure and hierarchy of the Huns? Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, cool. So in three seven nine CE, they conquered the Cock the Cockalands. Uh, I think that's the Caucasus area, if I'm not mistaken. The Huns would continue their invasion of the region with many more tribes always seeking refuge to Rome. So they would come pillage and then the people who used to live just would migrate to Rome. And when they were denied, they would either have to go back to the settlements or fight the Romans. Most times than none, they would fight the Romans. They did not want to go back. That's how bad it was. That's how bad it was. Between 395 and 398 CE, the Huns overran Roman territories of Thrace and what would be today Syria. Uh, pillaging cities and farmlands in the regions while other Huns settled in Roman territories like Pannonia. 
So some of them conquered the province of Rome and just settled there. And um, the Romans just let it. Yeah. So this is almost a contradictory nature of the Huns, right? So you'd have some Huns who would pillage and continue, and some Huns would just acquiesce and settle down. They, like prob- they, 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 go they probably like, it's like almost like planting your seed and keep going, planting your seed and keep going. No, so this what it tells us is that the Huns never had a, a, a centralized leader. They were just a bunch of groups, different, like imagine, like for example, different cities of Romans going to conquer different things at the so, same time. Uh, so all these takedowns, was it in synchronicity or was it all simultaneous? Simultaneous. Like you'd have like a group of Huns just go pillage this and then another group will go pillage this. But the thing is, it, there's nothing that all, connects them. They I were just Huns. But were they all Huns? They were all Huns, but there was no like... Or were they all just lumped as Huns? Huns? No, no, they were all Huns. Okay. But it shows you that they weren't like connected by a single threat. There was no like Genghis Khan to lead them. Unless well, that I, was a premeditated go here, go here, go here. No, but the fact that some of them had different visions, like some of them would go pillage gold and come back, while some of them would just take over the land and continue farming. There wasn't consistent. There wasn't consistency, and it's almost contradictory. So it's hard to plan for someone like that. Exactly. And you don't... So you could tell that... So what the Huns is, and what you were talking about, is the Huns structure was that there was the Hunnic tribe, mm-hmm. but then these tribes would be divided into sub-tribes and factions. So you had the Hunnic people, but then each Hun was considered its own tribe. With each with their own chief, which makes us understand that the objectives of the Huns were different, were different from Anton, which made it very difficult for people to predict them. If each one had their own sub-tribe and had their own chief with a different goal in mind, then how do you battle the Huns? Who, which Hun are you battling? Like which ideology are you fighting? Exactly. Um, so they continued their pressure on the surrounding tribes, and it seemed that no one knew how to stop them. In December 406 CE, uh, the Vandals crossed the Rhine and invaded the land of Gaul. The Vandals. To get away from the Huns. In 408 CE, Alden, a chief of one of the Hunnic tribes, ransacked Thrace, and which forced the Rome to pay them a ransom to stop. The Rome was like, listen, stop with the invasions, here's a tribute. And they would continue to pay them a tribute. It's like barbarians in the game. Yeah, when you pay barbarians in the game to stop invading you. In civilization, yeah. So You you levy their military. You you could eventually levy their military or you could just pay them to stop attacking you for like 20 turns. Yeah, yeah. Um, It makes it, it shows you how like intricate civilization the game is, huh? Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, where were we? So Rome paid off. Yeah, yeah. So this became kind of a standard practice for the Romans in dealing with the Huns, just paid them off. Uh, Amenaeus would describe their attacks as such, okay? And I quote, They fight in no regular order of battle, but by being extremely swift and sudden in their movements, they disperse and then they rapidly come together in loose array. Spread a havoc over the vast plains and flying over the rampart, they pillage, they pillage the camp of their enemy almost before he, he has even become aware of their approach. They were expert horsemen, and they were rarely seen dismounted so much, so they, they carried their negotiations on back of horses. So the thing with the Huns is that, like, like I said, they never dismount from their horses. They're always on horses, and they always attacked on horseback. They never had a standing army. Everyone attacked on horses. Interesting. Um, kind of, again, what the Mongolians would be famous for later. Yeah. Yeah, and like so much so that um, even the historian would say that they, they even carried the negotiations on backs of horses. It's non-stop movement. Just on horses. Um, so the Huns would appear out of nowhere and then vanish, right? This army would become even so much more when they start to get unified. And they got unified under the most famous of the Huns, Attila. Here, you can make your reference. 
No. <laughs> if only you guys could see the smile on his face. <laughs> I know there's like a thousand songs playing in your head right now. Just one. <laughs> Just one. <laughs> so part three, Attila the Hun. Five. Guys, if you ever need a good pump up <laughs> band with really douchey lyrics, listen to Attila. Mm-hmm. I'm plugging them. It's a good workout band. Okay, sure. So to the band Attila. Hey, yes. Would you be doing Attila the Hun? Had you not heard the band Attila? Um, I'm pretty sure I've heard of Attila before I've heard of yeah, the band right. Attila. Yeah, right. Okay. So much so that when I first heard Attila. Do you know that Attila the Hun and the Hun, their relevance resurfaced after Attila the band came out. Historians were like, where did Attila <laughs> the band get the name from? And they reopened the, the books and researched about Attila the Hun. So they were a lost tribe until Attila the, the band man. brought them back, <laughs> back into the land. Yeah, because Attila the band, Afans, the singer, uh, did his whole research, mm-hmm. excavated stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, found there was an archaeologist. Uh, yeah, archaeologist is <laughs> like, yo, why isn't anyone doing a band with this band? You know, why isn't talking? So he initially did the band to raise awareness on Attila. The Even Hun. though Attila had no songs about the Huns. Yeah, but the the the, the, sw- the, the swag vibe. the swag of Attila. It's, it's pretty much what you're hunts. describing. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. This is the first Attila reference. Okay. Keep that in mind. Yeah. So, part three, Attila the Hun. Born to a Hunnic aristocrat in the early fi- 5th century. Georgia Atlanta. <laughs> he wasn't born. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. He wasn't born in the. He's not six feet tall. He's not 10 feet tall. No, he's not 10 feet tall. Born to a Hunnic aristocrat in the early 5th century, around about 400 CE, Attila and his elder brother, Belda, were nephews to King Rugila. That's tough. You, you, you named Attila and your brother's name is Belda. Belda. And they were named after King Rugila. Rugila is a cool name. Uh, King Rugila, sorry. So King Rugila was known to the Romans as King of the Huns, even though he was not really a hundred. I thought Huns didn't have kings. exactly, even though, but they saw him as the person who the elder, the elder, you know, the guy with the most influence. Um, and the Huns that were in Kazakhstan, just the Huns who moved westward. Then, but so here's where the confusing part. You said the the Huns were sporadically spread, but they all spread westward, and they all came from a trap. Then he re- they all realized like Rugila had his own has his own tribe. But most likely, what happened is is that his tribe was the biggest Hunnic tribe. Okay, so so they the assumed biggest that, crew. Yeah, so it seemed like okay, here's the big. So, but there could have been multiple mini Rugilas. So, no, I'm serious. No, I get you. So, for example, in uh, like it contradicts in, in, in WCW, you had so many factions, right? The NWO was splintered to so many factions. Okay, but who was the leader of the NWO? Who was the leader of the biggest portion of the NWO? Hulk Hogan. What you gonna do when Hulkamania and the largest arms in the world run wild on you? There you go. (laughs) I I understand now. (laughs) (laughs) So Hulk Hogan was considered the king of the NWO. But there were the subgroups of NWO. But there were subgroups of NWO. The mid-card, the lower-card, the upper-card. And each one was kind of operating in their different fields. Yeah, their own stuff. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But Hulk Hogan was the source, the main event. Got you. (laughs) Clear. <laughs> in layman's terms, <laughs> there should be a study of this. And yeah. Um. So you should do NWO and how history is end of yeah. How you could explain all history through just Hulk N- Hogan's career. Yeah. <laughs> NWO. Yeah. So King Rugila uh, was known to the Romans as the king of the Huns, right? 
whether he rules over them or just the largest faction is not known to all of to us. Sorry, guys, because it probably didn't explain it well for the audience. So conceptually, because <laughs> we're like, yeah, it makes sense. But what he means is uh, it's like a big group, but within a, that group, there's subgroups. But the main group with the most power mm-hmm. was Rigula. Like any, like any tribe or any group or any clique, usually whoever has the biggest portion tends to be the one who kind of speaks for all. Yeah, like boy bands. Yeah. There's always that one guy who everyone knows. Is the, yeah, yeah. Like, like JT. JT. Yeah. Damn. People Jinx. say JT at the same time. He's the most like breakout from the boy bands. For no? sure. Or Beyonce. From the True, yeah. Bands, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I could say Beyonce. Yeah. The Spice Girls, they never really, one of them never really blew up, huh? Victoria Beckham. Yeah, but not as an artist though. She like not Beyonce level, not JT level. True. Uh, anyways, um, yeah, but Spice Girl were the most relevant at the time. They were the most relevant, but I guess uh, no like, piece, no piece is greater than Backstreet the whole. Even Backstreet Boys, but you know, Backstreet Boys was bigger than NSYNC. But you know when they say no part is bigger than the whole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Some, some it was obvious. Others needed the crew. I mean, like in Boys when he said the boys. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the right? That reference. Now it makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. Yeah. So um so like I said, whether he rules over them or just was in charge of the largest faction uh, faction is not known to us, but in four three three CE. Sorry, I think the last thing could be age wise and tribe wise. So what you know in the East Asian system where it depends on your age and who you're related to, you're considered senior. Like family tree? Yeah. Maybe. Maybe in fam- maybe in family tree of the Huns. He is the closest thing to the elders. Especially with like Korea. Yeah. How their last name determines your positioning in society. Yeah, so no matter what you are or where you are, what you're doing, your last name has some relevance. So probably regular was like, your name is regular, this son of this, damn. Okay, then you're tri- like system-wise h- higher than all of us. It's kind of like Genghis Khan, how his father was considered like uh, one of the rulers of the biggest clans. Exactly. So the, then he gets that uh, yeah. cred. So he gets that cred. So that that could be it too. So, anyways, like we said, <coughs> King Rugula in uh, in fourteen four sorry in four three three CE, so thirty three years after Attila's birth, uh, he would die in a campaign and would be succeeded by the two brothers to rule jointly. So he left in his will that the both brothers would be ruled together. How did you how did you end up with Attila? We'll see. Um, the brothers also brokered a peace in in 439 CE with the Romans called the Treaty of Margus, which con- which continued Romans' payments to the Huns in return. But how did they do a treaty if they couldn't read or write? They had the translator, I'm assuming. Okay. Back in the day, treaties, I don't think, was written and signed. And, Consider uh, me the audience in this. For sure. You are the audience in this. Oh, thought I was the main character. <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, like, you're supposed no, to ask the no, questions no, the audience no, would no, ask I get, you. No, I got it, I got it, I got it. I we were equals here, yeah. We are Close equals. No, we are. I get it, I get it. No, no I, I see it, I see it. Okay, I'll be the dumb, questiony, <laughs> exposition <laughs> guy. Yeah. Exposition. What, is, what does that mean? Bro, I'm the one who's giving up. I'm, like, being basal exposition here. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. Okay. <laughs> anyway. You were, like I mean, you're supposed to ask me the questions yeah, of the audience. Yeah, like yeah. for example, when you do your supposed episode, to. when you when you do your episode, yeah, well, if I'll I be, get an episode, you will get an episode. You, <laughs> you just never come to me. <laughs> you will <laughs> come to me and take yo. I want to take over. I'll give you the episode. Okay, please. Like I would not say no. 
Anyways, back to the point. <laughs> the result of which, so the Romans would continue to pay the hunts for peace. The result, the result of which allowed the Romans to withdraw their troops from the Danube River and send them to fight off the Vandals in Sicily and North Africa. The Vandals were a bunch of, I don't like using the term barbarians because... But they probably vandalized a lot. You know, <laughs> now that you say the vandalized, I'm pretty sure it came from the vandals, vandals. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I never put two and two together. Really? No. Oh, so much for the audience, huh? <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> you know, okay, next episode, Aim is taking over. I'm the audience here. You want to go? You want to do that? Oh, you're, you're giving me the very, like, I'm oh, not giving you, bro. Me, I'm sacrificing <laughs> my position. Yeah, anyway. no, but probably vandalism came from the vandals. So the vandals, they, they were in the northern African part of the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. So where it would be considered Carthage or um, Le- Algeria, Libya, that area. Uh, the g- so they were clearly uh, easy to uh, negotiate t- with. So they're like to the Huns, listen, man, we don't, we can't afford to fight you. Let us go focus on the Vandals because yeah. the Vandals are so screwing us he's over. a tribute. We'll take off our soldiers it, and send them to the Vandals. It shows the Huns didn't have political motives as much as like, yeah, sure, whatever. Whatever. If you're paying us, we're good to go. Yeah, you know what I mean? Very merchant-like. Um, the Huns also tried their... Uh, tried uh, so once the Roman troops bounced, the Huns turned eastward towards the Sassanid Empire, which is considered late Persian Empire. So the regions of Iraq and Iran, uh, but they were pushed back uh, to the Great Hungarian Plain. So they tried to shoot their shot against the Persians, and then the Persians just pushed them back. Like, nah, bro. no, not here, <laughs> not here. Uh, you could go continue fighting Western over Western. I passed you, bro. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're like, listen. What you want to do with the Romans, you do. You don't do it here. Yeah. Um, the But the Roman troops were deployed in Sicily, right? So the Huns, when they came back defeated, they noticed that there were no more troops on the Danube River. And they saw it as an opportunity. Although they were paid not to do anything. To plunder. So on the summer of 441 CE, Attila and Belda drove their army through the border of the Danube and they, started, and they sacked the city of... Illyricium, 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 yeah, uh, a, a, pro, a profitable Roman trade center, and they broke the treaty by destroying the city. They destroyed it. Oh. Uh, the Eastern Roman Empire, Theodosius II, recalled his army to quell the rampage. So the Eastern Roman Empire sent his army to fight that. Mm-hmm. To keep in mind that the Romans were separated, there was the Western Roman Empire and the Eastern Roman yeah, Empire yeah, yeah. then. Attila and Belda responded with a full-scale invasion. They sacked and destroyed Roman cities within 20 miles of the Roman capital of Constantinople. Wow. Uh, the city of Nasius, the birthplace of Constantine, was sacked and razed to the ground. It would not be rebuilt for a century afterwards. Wow. So imagine Constantine's uh, hometown got destroyed. Uh, the Huns had later had learned a great deal about siege warfare from the time serving the Roman emp- uh, Roman army as mercenaries. Because of course, the Romans, if they're any f- famous for anything, you pay your enemies to become your mercenaries. Bites back that like what they did with the Taliban. Yeah, what America does with the Taliban, pretty much never changes. Their offensive was even more successful because it was completely unexpected. I was going to say Theodosius too. Theodosius II had been confident that the Huns would keep the treaty. When they told him that they were invading, he's like, there's no way. Uh, he refused to listen to counsel at first. That's why they pushed so far in. Wow. He, he could not like fathom that they would break their treaty. But these guys don't care. Exactly. So the emperor, realizing that the end was in sight, asked for another peace term. 
and the and the ransom and like asked to pay for ransom. Attila demanded it to be three times the worth of the OG treaty that they had signed. So it's like whatever you pay this, we want three times more. And then on 445, two years later, Belda vanishes from history. And rumor has it that Attila assassinated his brother to be the sole ruler of the Huns. Other sources say that he died during campaign, but it's generally just accepted that Attila had him killed. You know? You think it's just a way to like make Attila come off more like of the big bad? Um, I mean, they were constantly at war and all that. It could be you. It could be anything. Could have died from alcohol poisoning because by then, uh, disease, a wound. Yeah, an infected wound. And to keep up for image, they just buried him somewhere in the like. Yeah, look at this ruthless barbarian who killed his brother to become sole ruler. Yeah, there, there is that, and that's why. And like, then you have you said if it was written by the Romans, that's a good villain arc. Yeah, right. I mean, it already sounds really villainous as it is. Mm-hmm. Because while I am all down for taking down like major empires, probably his approach was very like hardcore. Yeah, and questionable. Yeah, but that you know when you hear history from one perspective, you'll never know. So in in regard to that, he uh, pulled a Tupac. Historian Will Durant writes of Attila, and this is taken from a description from ancient Perseus, who wrote about the Romans two years after, two hundred years after, who wrote about Attila. Sorry, Attila differed from other barbarian conquerors, interesting or interesting to cunning more than to force. Uh, so Attila was considered more cunning than brutal. He ruled by using the heathen super, superstitions of his people to sanctify his majesty. His victories were prepared by exaggerated stories of his cruelty, which perhaps he had himself originated. At last, even his Christian's enemy called him the scourge of God, and were so terrified by his cunning that only the gods could save them. He could neither read read or write, but this did not detract from his intelligence. He was not a savage. He had a sense of honor and justice. and He proved himself to be more magnanimous than the Romans. First take. <laughs> he, lived in, <laughs> he, lived in just, he lived in just simply, ate and drank moderately, and left luxuries to his inferiors, who loved to display their gold and silver utensils. Attila was known, by the way, to eat from a wooden spoon and a wooden plate. He did not dine with fine silverware. Attila had many wives, but scorned that the mixture of monogamy and debauchery, which was popular in, in Rome. He looked down at monogamy and this, this debauchery. So he was just a marriage kind of thing. Yeah, his, uh, but the, Attila, uh, the, Huns, uh, the Italians, <laughs> the Huns uh, were known to be polygamists. Okay. Uh, his palace was huge, log, uh, log house floored, and walled with planned plaques, but adorned with elegantly carved and polished wood, and reinforced with carpet and skins to keep out the cold. So you have this portrait of Attila as being more of a restrained and measured ruler than like an evil, bloodthirsty barbarian, mm-hmm. who wasn't living in excess, but also ruled with a reputation as a boogeyman. So he loved the idea that he came off cruel to people, because when people say the Huns are coming, yeah, you have the instant anticipation that oh my god, there's no way out. And I'm sure he also has this concept of when I'm at war, I switch off, and when I'm at home, I'm switched on. So the fact that like he would originate his own exaggerated stories of his cruelty is almost like Genghis Khan. It's like in that uh, episode in Breaking Bad, and everyone thinks Jesse Pinkman smashed the guy's face. Yeah, so it's like let them people know so that they could pay us on time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, similar when he didn't do it. Exactly. So all these cruel stories could have been just inflated, yeah. So between 445 to 451 CE, Attila led his army on numerous raids and successful campaigns. And he slaughtered people, leaving destruction in his wake. And in 451 CE, 451 
CE, a showdown happened. Attila met a man named Flavius Aetius and Theodoric I of the Visigoths on the Battle of the Calons. So you're saying Attila and the Goths didn't get along? No. Interesting. <laughs> we'll have part, to ask them. Part four. Part four. Part four. Part four. <laughs> All roads lead to Rome. So by the 5th century, the Roman Empire had been divided into two parts. Are you going to tell us what happened with the Visigoths? And the yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I'm just okay, giving okay, you... Yeah, so okay. look... Because like end of chapter and then a flashback. Yeah, so what happens is like they sit down and they're meeting and then you get flashback. Interesting storytelling. I'm giving you, yeah, I'm giving a vague. Wow, wow. Yeah, yeah. Part this side side thing. Side character, yeah. 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 What makes cinema? Uh, And I'm going to, if you want me to go off on a side character arc to create like some emotional depth, let me know. But yeah, but like I'm trying to give you a Quentin Tarantino ask (laughs) episode today. Yeah. So by the 5th century, the Roman Empire was divided into two parts, right? You had the Eastern Roman Empire ruled from Constantinople, which rules the parts of Antolia, Greece, Levant, Egypt, and Cyprus. That's the Eastern Roman Empire. And the Balkans, sorry. So the Eastern Roman Empire had all that area and the Balkans. The Western part ruled from Milan. Rome wasn't their capital anymore. Their new capital was Milan. Uh, did you know that? No. No, you know. Uh, Rome at that time was considered like some ancient relic, like it was a museum city. You know what I mean? And they occupied France, Iberia, south of Britain, Germany, Algeria, Spain, and Portugal. That was the Western Empire of, of Rome. The Eastern part was flourishing at that time. It was kind of benefiting and reaping, while the Western half was slowly becoming a shadow of its former self. Barbarians had set up kingdoms in Roman provinces, especially in Gaul and Spain. Britain would eventually be lost, and pretty much North Africa was slipping out of its imperial grasp by the Vandals. By the time of our story, uh, the Western part of Rome was ruled by a boy emperor named Valentinian III, who became emperor at the age of five. This is where we would meet General Flavius Aetius, who was pretty much ruling Rome, the west of Rome, Roman's Western Empire, and he was pretty much emperor in everything but name. See, so during that time of period, the Western Roman Empire was kind of, they had emperors, but they were kind of nobodies. It was the generals who were the military. Kind of was, like how the monarchy is now with yeah, the prime minister in England. But the, but the military was ruling. So the generals would be ruling the country and the, the emperor, emperor would just, just be a figurehead. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Low-key, like kind of like Mussolini with Italy. If yeah. I think a lot of people forget that Mussolini was a prime minister. Even Hitler for a while. Yeah, uh, but Mussolini till, Mussolini till his death was a prime minister. There was a king of Italy. Yeah, yeah. Useless, but, but yeah. So it's like exactly like how fascist Italy was run. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe that's why he wanted it to be like the glory of Rome. Maybe he thought of Western Rome. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So he was controlling the country in anything but name. His army composed of barbarian soldiers and officers who were Romanized. And he would be considered by Romans as the last of the Romans. So Flavius, his army at certain points also got assistance from the Huns. Uh, it was the Huns who aided him in becoming the most powerful man in Western Europe. Through the mercenary. Uh, yes, in Europe. Yeah, Western Rome, sorry. Uh, quick side note. Aetius was imprisoned by Olden, one of the kings of the Huns, and would later be let go. So he probably clicked with... So by June 20th, 451 CE, Attila and Flavius met on the Catalonian plains, uh, north of Troyes, the city of Troyes. Attila had chosen the area because it was kind of a flat ground, so it suited his horses to run across it. There was not a lot of hilltops. Uh, The only high ground was a hill to his left. The Roman general deployed the Alans in the center, which were a barbarian tribe. He also employed the Visigoth king Theodoric and his forces to the right, and the Romans and the rest of the Germanic troop would be on the left. That's the battleground. 
Attila, on the opposite side, placed himself in the center of the line, and his allies and the detachments of the Hanek cavalry on the flanks. It's interesting how American football probably <coughs> took off from this kind of stuff, and it's all it's most basic. Yeah, two people standing on opposite sides, just splitting trying, to flanks, and just trying to get across. Yeah, throwing a ball. It's very. It's very military and strategies and how. Yeah, yeah. Them. It's very old school. Yeah, very, if you think yeah. about it, yeah. And it's just clicked to me now. According to historians, the battle began at midday. The Visigoths confronted a detachment of the Huns. Uh, despite heavy casualties, the Visigoths took control of key locations during the battles, which gave Atius or Flavius a strategic advantage. The details of the battles are very unclear, but it was known that it was back and forth, and it kind of destroyed the Alans, the barbarians in the center. So the Huns took, were able to take over the center, but they would be counterattacked by the Visigoths and the heavy cavalry until it would eventually withdraw. Wow. So Flavius understood how to beat the Huns. I do understand them. Like Huns conquered the mid, the center part of the, but then they got overwhelmed by the counterattacks from, from the, the side. Flanks, yeah. Attila withdraw and took many of his plunders and riches. He didn't lose like much, uh, except Just people. Yeah. yeah. King Theodoric lost his life in the war, the king of the Visigoths. Oh, damn. Uh, however, this motivated his soldiers to fight more because once he got killed, they're like, okay, then we have to avenge his death. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Rumor has it that Flavius left out many of the shortcomings of the war from the record book and used it to show it as like propaganda that the Visigoths took most of the damage. Not his. Not his people. But it was probably an equal damage to all three parties. All three, yeah. Since, of course, Romans' principal antagonists were always the Goths. Mm. They're just like you, really. Except that we listen to Cradle of Filth. Especially like Gaul. So it's easy to say, oh, look at them, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. even though the enemy of my enemy is a friend, they're still an enemy, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, Flavius would also allow the Huns to withdraw. He never even finished them off. Uh, the battle was not a decisive, decisive victory, but for Flavius, it was a great success story. Like a moral, moral yeah. No, He not only defeated and humiliated Attila through his clever planning, but he was also able to drain the might of his the other barbarians that decided to join with him. So that later on he can could take, take, over. take them over. Which allowed the arm, the Roman army to consolidate more of its positions in Gaul. So it was able to take off more of the positions. And further, by keeping Roman forces out of the battle for most of the part, Aetius was able to preserve the only existing Roman army from the western side. Mm-hmm. So it's like our army is fully intact. The barbarians and took, took, the heavy, the, took the, all the heavy lifting. The brilliant Roman general brought his empire some badly needed respite but Attila was not done yet Attila retreated but it's a battle yeah man you know Attila they don't give up is there a lyric you want to share no no <laughs> just say it here I'm giving you one chance to give out a lyric no no lyric no lyric no lyric you want me to add a soundbite for Attila potentially okay we'll have to ask them okay for sure yeah by 552 CE okay this is clearly so a year later Attila's empire kind of had stretched from regions of Russia all the way down to Hungary a year later that was Attila's kingdom uh, and across from that area all the way to Germany and om- into France, almost reaching the Atlantic Ocean. His empire stretched wow. that much. Attila would continue to... I didn't to realize it was that big. Because there was not like a proper em- like Roman empire for like a central point. To- that's why people don't, forget, don't put in mind how big the empire is. Because like it's nomadic, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Attila's empire. So Attila would also receive continue to receive tributes from the Eastern Roman Empire after like the Battle of Constantinople they're like okay they just continue paying off that's why he never really affected Eastern Roman Empire they just drained them from money Mm -mm. the Western part though being like almost bankrupt they They had to fight they had to fight Um, it was something akin to his salary so he was pretty much receiving a salary from the Eastern Roman Empire despite the defeat in the previous battle Attila would return his attack and attacked the Western Roman Empire and raided all the way into Northern Italy, uh, where he besieged and raised Aquila and pillaged Milan. Wow, so he capital. reached the capital. And there was a story that goes when Attila entered the palace in Milan, the Empress Palace in Milan, 
he saw paintings of Roman emperors killing the Huns, or like the the or Roman emperor killing the Huns. So he commissioned a painting of him sitting on the golden throne, uh-huh. of and previous emperors paying him in gold. He wanted all the emperors to be painted lining up, giving him gold. Wow. Pope Leo the first made a diplomatic mission to spare Rome. So Italy literally just accepted the, accepted this dude's uh, plea, and he just left. He left. The Rome, island so of, he was understanding of religion. He left Italy wow. in a heart, like he left Milan and just bounced back. He's like, okay, whatever. He's like, I don't need this. Maybe he saw how shit it looked. And it's like, perhaps, or maybe uh, he just needed that picture done. Yes, <laughs> that trip. <laughs> and God knows, you think he took the painting with him? Like, he's like, okay, guys, wrap this up and let's head back. Yeah, let's head. Yeah. <laughs> That's the only thing he has. <laughs> Instagram post. Yeah. yeah. So historians tried to present the Attila's acceptance to go back across the Danube River as a miracle, like a Christian miracle. Like historian, Christian historians would try to like say, oh, it's a Pope Leo. So Pope Leo was kind of sanctified for it. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, he saved the Roman Empire. He saved the Holy Roman Empire. Of course, uh, people just say it's more of a practical reason. Uh, like, there was more of a practical reason for his decision. He didn't want to sh- spread too much, like, spread, spread himself thin. thin yeah. yeah. And he looted all the, like, the booty, pretty he, much. He, uh, just from, needed, he just needed money. Yeah, he just looted Milan. Milan was kind of going through a pandemic of sorts. Like, there was a disease-ridden thing. And so he's like, like, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. And this was the last of Attila's victories. So this was the Attila's biggest mainstay in that area. Okay. So part five. The death of Attila and the dissolution of the Huns. Damn. 453 CE, so a year after his conquest into uh, Milan, Attila got married to a lady called Ildiko. And during the celebration of his wedding, according to uh, Persicus, he got drunk on too much wine and eventually passed out. And that's when he got a nosebleed that kind of went down into his throat and he choked on his blood and died. Wow. Yeah. Uh, the Huns held this funeral procession. Apparently, they eared their faces with blood so they would cut under their eyes. Uh, small cuts so they could look like they're bleeding tears interesting uh, tears of blood for Attila mm. uh, and they rode slowly in a steady circle around his tent which held his body that was their funeral ritual Kelly would describe the aftermath of Attila's death as such and I quote according to the Roman historian Persicus they the men of Attila had cut their long hair slashed their cheeks so that the greatest of all warriors should be mourned not with the tears or the wailing of women but with the blood of men they followed a day of grief, feasting, and funeral games, a combination of celebration and lamentations. They had a long history, like, had a long history in the ancient world. That night, far beyond the frontiers of the Roman Empire, Attila was buried in his... Uh, Attila was buried. His body was encased in three coffins. The innermost coffin was covered in gold. So they believed in rites of passage. Yeah, passage yeah. a second. So his first coffin was made of gold. The one outside of that was made of silver. And the third one out of that was made of iron. Three layers. The gold and silver symbolized the plunder that Attila had seized. Okay. And the harsh gray iron recalled the victory of the steel with his sword. So that's the reasoning behind yeah, it. Uh, so it's not like they have to pay for the afterlife? No, no. It was like he was buried in gold because of the money, he's, the gold he stole. Okay. And silver because of the silver he's, he he plundered, he won. And the iron because of how victorious he was in battle. Interesting. All right. Very poetic. Attila was said to be buried under a river. And those who buried him were also killed. Uh, so they would not tell where his burial site wow. is. Uh, which was part of a common funeral practice apparently around the time. That like people who would buried person was so, kind of so like condemned get, to so death. So they don't pal- pillage the gold and the silver. They don't pillage the gold and the silver. Yeah, I think so. I think so. that's probably it. Probably an honor as well. Until now, no one knows where Attila is buried. It's one of those greatest mysteries, kind of like Alexander. The, where's the gr- tomb of Alexander the Great, or where's the tomb of Genghis Khan? No one knows where Attila is buried. Mm. There's rumors that he's buried in Hungary. There's rumors he's buried in the Danube. 
rumors that his, oh, he went all the, back, all the way back to Kazakhstan and got buried there. No one really knows. Apparently, like, he fell into a river somewhere. So what happened after? His empire would be divided to his three sons, Ilak, Denkij, and Ernakh. The commanding and fearsome presence of Attila, which kept the empire together, of course, since he passed away, it fell apart. apart. Yeah. Uh, and that's the problem with Attila. When Attila took control, he dissolved something, what would be something close to a centralized governing system. By him becoming the sole ruler and kind of abolishing this idea of like... Uh, like random nomadic spreading. Yeah. Attila unified the Huns. But, but, but in the process of him not being able to create a centralized government to run the Huns, and him just becoming, once it divided what's next yeah, yeah for sure you know what i mean each brother claimed the region of the tribe and they all just dispersed each brother claimed the region and as they say divided we fall and that allowed people to start rebelling against the huns so the people who were observed into the huns from other settlements decided like listen this is more best time than never to go like to break away take over yeah yeah you know they're not as strong as together i'm pretty sure there's a lot of infighting between the brothers Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. the Huns attempted to fight back, but they lost. They lost. They lost to tribes that would make modern-day Romania, Hungary. His son Elak would be murdered in five four in four five four CE, so literally a year after he took control. He got murdered in a battle. The Huns dissolved. The people, the whatever remained of the Huns, was absorbed into the cultures of those they conquered, uh, or they used to conquer, but then rebelled again. And yeah, and. Rep- to be honest, reprisal for earlier wrongs seems to have been carried out as evidence. The Goths uh, would massacre the Huns in Pannonia. They went on a complete massacre after the empire had fallen. After the year 4 CE, uh, four, no, sorry, after the year 469 CE, so we're talking about less than 15 years later, uh, there was no longer mention of the Huns. No one brought up the Huns. Uh, they just disappeared. So as fast as they spread, they fell? Yeah. Uh, Hunnic campaigns, settlements, or any activity concerning them as a formidable army was no longer mentioned. It shows when you don't build a foundation after that, yeah. you fall You apart. don't build a legacy, yeah. Aside from ancient historian comparisons between the Huns and the later coalitions of the Avars, which is another episode I want to attack because when I was reading about the Avars for this one, which I'm not going to mention because like, I want to save them for later, this is a very interesting topic. So the Huns would later be compared to a coalition of the Avars. But after 469, only the, there were only stories left of massacres, raids, and terrors that the Huns inspired. That became their legacy. They became evil people, like mm-hmm. the evil doers of the world. What is the legacy of the Huns? I guess, so part six. So the legacy of the Huns. The, so despite the disappearance, the influence of the Huns persisted in the Germanic tribes, especially in something called artificial cranial deformation. The process of artificially lengthening the, st- the skulls of the babies. I heard about this. Yeah. yeah. That was if the you Huns? Go- yeah. If you Google artificial cranial deformation and look at the pictures, you see what I mean. Okay, let me Google that. They kind of have that alien head. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The ancient aliens like to say, "Oh, this is proof that they were all engated." Uh, <laughs> Artificial cranial cranial deformation. Artificial crab. Oh yeah, those elongated heads they found were. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the process. So this is the process of like binding the baby's heads so it could like elongate up. What is the reason for that? It's a sign of nobility to the Huns. So the Huns would also. Um, so if anyone carried like had an elongated skull, they were considered to be a no, like considered from noble bloodline. So a lot of Germanic tr- tribes around that region would start implementing these practices. Yeah, it's a pack. It takes six months. Yeah. To... Uh, the Huns would also play a role in European legends with their battles against. So a lot of European tribes would make poems about their battles against the Huns. This would also be mentioned in a famous Norse poem called The Battle of the Goths and the Huns. The Germans portrayed the Huns in a more favorable light. Proto-Neolithic Homo sapiens started it, 9th millennium BCE. 
but also Central Asia would be the Huns. So it was spread out, but the Huns were one of the origins. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to see that concept through different cultures at different times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think there's also in, in Africa as well. Africa, I think also in Latin America. Yeah, tr- very tribal right? method. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, Unless. Unle- okay, so the Germans portrayed the Huns in a more favorable light afterwards, unlike the Norse or like the Nordic. Uh, the Huns were seen as the ancestors of the Hungarian people. Despite historians' debate, there's not really anything. So it's probably a mix. Hungarians probably is Huns mixed with something with Garys, whatever was there. (laughs) The Hungarys, (laughs) the Hungarys. But the thing is, a lot of um, this uh, this idea that the Huns or the Hungarians were descended from Huns kind of influenced Hungarian nationalism and Hungarian national identity. Interesting. Uh, Hungarian aristocrats would continue to ascribe to this viewpoint. Uh, the fascist Arrow Cross Party uh, referred to the referred to the Hungary as the Hunna people, and they used the propaganda that they were Hungarians. Mm-hmm. Uh, so was the right-wing Jobbik pan-Turanism uh, ideology, dependent on, link, on finding the link that justifies the existence of the Hungarians as the Huns. So you can see how this kind of built on a nationalist sentiment that we yeah. are the descendants of Attila. I think in Hungary there's a statue of Attila, by the way. Interesting. They liked the idea that we were that at they had that something, time, yeah, yeah, lineage to Attila. On June, on July 27th, 1900, during the Boxer Rebellion in China, Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany, in a speech, gave the order to act ruthlessly towards the rebels in China. In China, mercy will not be shown. Prisons will not be taken. Just a thousand years ago, the, Hel- the Huns under Attila won the reputation of might that lives on in legends. So made the name of Germany and China. That such no Chinese will ever again dare so much to look askance at the German. So he also used this idea that like to be like the Huns in quashing rebellion mm-hmm. so that the Germans will be as feared as the Huns. Yeah. Uh, of course, in World War One, when propagandists come, and I'm pretty sure you've seen posters back in the day, uh, Britain, Britain and America will use the, uh, the moniker the Huns are coming or mm. to defeat the Huns when they're talking about the Germans. Kind of building up this image that the, uh, the Germans were a barbaric so force. So German, German kind of took claim of the Huns a bit. Yeah, but again, it would be used as anti-German propaganda to call the Germans the Huns. I'm pretty sure you've seen an old war movies with like the Huns, the Huns, the Huns when they talk yeah, about the yeah. Germans. Uh, this would lead, and also in World War II, they would use propaganda calling the Germans the Huns in order to paint the Germans as some savage barbarians. This is something I want to focus on. So the, these factors, like the Roman Empire kind of, um, kind of went to a state of non-existence, right? After the battles with the Huns and other barbarians, the Roman army lacked any proper training and equipment. The government itself was very unstable. Peter Heather, the author of The Fall of the Roman Empire, he states that Rome fell not because of its stupidious fabric but because its German neighbors responded to its power the way that the Romans could never have foreseen by virtue of its unbound aggression Roman imperialism was responsible for its own destruction so it spread itself too wide and it ended up encountering and it had to fight so many people in different so fronts. many people in different so many fronts and it didn't have enough military or financial might exactly like for example the Huns wouldn't have spread had they weren't focused on and had their and had they not reached the Danube or the the frontier of the Roman yeah, Empire yeah. they would not have been spread thin yeah uh, and then and them trying to go and then them fucking off to the Vandals to stop the Vandals yeah, only yeah, to let the Hungar- uh, the, Hungarians, the Huns take it more yeah the Huns to take over the end of the ancient world was the fall of the Roman Empire the Western Roman Empire and a big contributor to that mm. yeah and the Middle Ages was born 
The Dark Ages brought the end also. So this kind of also brought us into the Dark Ages. The West would fall into turmoil. As much was lost, Western civilization still owes a debt to the Romans. So that was the legacy of the Huns. So the question is, was the Huns a contributor to the fall of Rome or was Rome bound to um, fall regardless of the Huns. This is one of history's biggest debates. Historians tend to argue that the Huns were kind of the, the domino effect. Effect. The Huns came over, the end was in the end was nigh, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think the Huns at least showed the gaps of the military might of the Roman Empire and gave confidence for other barbarians to be like, we can do this too. Others say even regardless if the Huns existed or not, Rome would have still fallen. Yeah, but it probably accelerated it. That's the thing. So I think the, the Huns were somewhat of a catalyst because there's nothing that happens in a vacuum. You can't just come attack a country and then that's like a non-canon storyline. Dude, and not just that, you, these barbarians, quote unquote, got into your capital um, because they were the not interested. Mm-hmm. Like the Huns were not interested. So they why? And dipped. So it shows that Rome was already falling on so the decline. It was, and, and then this just doubled, accelerated the damage, you know, by 10x. You have that. Also keep in mind that when the Goths or like the other barbarian tribes ran away from the Huns into your country, of course, that they caused food shortages. And you had over overpopulation, disease, all that stuff as well. Exactly. So them causing that migration, plus having, having Rome focus on the Huns and not the other areas, allowed other areas to be taken over by or the other battles more fiercely. So instead of taking all their military to focus on... No, the other regions they, they had, had to, to shift it to Huns as well so, and, and, and the Huns it, were so efficient that it took a lot of damage definitely and keep in mind also like even the tributes you're paying how much did that like, yeah, affect the sure, economy sure. of Rome and you're still getting attacked and you're still getting attacked yeah of course another thing is Attila has now become uh, a byword of a boogeyman mm-hmm. um, Genghis Khan would eventually I think eventually take over in popularity yeah. But Attila the Hun, you say that name and you have an image of like a fearsome tattooed war, yeah, band, face tattooed, and like I remember when I posted that we bounce music. <laughs> Down, did he have a tattooed face? Apparently, so uh, when I, I posted, there's any images. I won't say tattooed face, but apparently someone was saying when I posted that we're gonna do an episode on Attila, is that um, yo, I heard my my teachers used to tell me that Attila used to tattoo parts of it of like the like he would tattoo skins of his uh he would skin people and tattoo it onto his body or some shit like that um so interesting I, looking guy so many rumors about attila so many yeah, there's no consistent image of him too. no no uh which uh, i guess maybe there's like a a coin thing looks like shang Tsung. Mortal Kombat. <laughs> i wonder if that was kind of an inspiration yeah this is giving me shang Tsung. but i'm sure shang Tsung was like him Genghis Khan. Khan, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, another idea would be like uh, later on, you would have a hundred years later, you would have the uh, Mongolians coming out of the same area, causing the same havoc. That, mm-hmm. um, but the only difference is, I think the Mongolian legacy is somewhat more stronger than the Huns. Because probably they were more literate, right? Even though I think the Huns, if they were contributing to the downfall of Rome, I think the downfall th- of Rome was a big. I thing. think why uh, the Huns are downplayed because there's not enough, enough written. evidence written evidence they came and they went and, and had we found uh, Han scriptures mm-hmm. describing these attacks and we'd be like whoa and the thing is the Huns like this outside of Rome the other tribes they conquered were not literate tribes like we have what well, we know so much about the Mongolians it's just because, about Romans which is biased and some Germanic scriptures but yeah but for the most part like when the Mongolians came about you had Islamic writings about it yeah yeah uh, 
Western writing about it, and, Russian and the Mongolians took over different empires, and they made central places for them to rule yeah, from. Yeah, yeah. So Mongolians was a lot more structured and a lot more. They were bigger. Yeah. But in terms of contributing to Rome itself, definitely, yeah. So I want to end with an. With I have a quick question. Ask me. We didn't answer. Why didn't they attack China? Here we go. Uh, why did the Huns? Was mi- that your question? Why did the Huns migrate west? Did the Chinese encourage them to go there? So another question that has puzzled historians and their mothers was why did the Huns migrate westward and seek land there and not east? East. So a new study that came out December 14th, 2022. Very recent. Very recent. Reveals that there had been a drought in that area uh, during that those years. So they were forced, forced to, to migrate. So the uh, so for example, Hungary during that time had exp- so Hungary this year has has experienced its driest summer. An archaeologist suggests that a similar condition was experienced in the 5th century, which may have resulted in herders becoming raiders. Like we said, the study showed argues that an extreme spell of drought that had disrupted the way of life and had forced the Huns to tackle this severe economic challenge. Mm-hmm. The authors, uh, associated, Associate Professor Suzanne Hakenbeck uh, from Cambridge Department of Archaeology and Professor Olf Buttingen from the University Department of Geography, came to the conclusion after assessing tree rings based on hydroclimate reconstruction. As well as archaeological and historical evidence, new climate data reconstructed from these tree rings uh, argued that the area provides really changes in climate for the last 2,000 years. And yes, so there are trees in Hungary that are 2,000 years old. Wow. And you could tell from the tree rings, from how expanded and like how wide and thin they are, what, what was the climate like. That's crazy. It shows that Hungary experienced really dry summers, which reduced, very, which reduced crop yields and pasture for animals. Uh, recent isotopic analysis of skeletons from that region suggests that the Hunnic people responded to climate stress by migrating and moving to look for lands to feed their pastors. So the China experienced the same drought? Yeah. So, so that is purely climate-wise. Climate uh, of course, and I think chi- by then China had built a great wall, so there's no... Harder to get through, through especially yeah. with the horses. So like, yeah. let's just, we need somewhere to move. China seems to have been more defensively stronger than the West at the time. Yeah. Yeah, the fact that the Mongolia. Chinese emperors have been able to survive all this time. Because a lot of them came from areas closer to China, yet the Chinese, Chinese empire has... Survived. Has held on. Um, right? Yeah, like there was no complete collapse of China, I think. Yeah. Maybe just different dynasties at different points. But yeah, but like, China as an entity. Like no one talks an... about Roman Empire, but everyone's still talking about China. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's crazy. Um, the study argues that if this is held to be true, then the Huns' incursions of 447, 451, and 452, the two years where they went into Italy, coincides with extremely dry summers by the steppes. Wow. So the years they attacked Milan and the big battle they had where they lost. Uh, coincides with a very extremely dry summer mm-hmm. and the fact that they attacked in the first one like we said july showed that they were kind of forced they're desperate because maybe the weather. that's why they broke the treaty ah uh, makes sense exactly the weather wasn't supporting them uh with the crop. i can back said that climate alters what the environments can provide and this can lead people to make decisions that affect their economy and the social and political organization such decisions are not straightforward rational nor are there consequences necessarily successful in the long term. And I want to end with this quote. This example show, from history shows that people respond to climate stress in complex and unpredictable ways, and that the short-term solutions can have negative consequences in the long term. Now, what we see today with climate problems, with dry summers, extreme weather changes, extreme migration caused by this. Mm-hmm. You can see what happened with the Huns. True. So this is why I kind of saved the question till the end. 
why did the Huns migrate and why did they continue attacking? Why, like, why did they just continue moving bad westward? Climate. They just were getting away from bad climate. Damn. So that was the story of the Huns. Like I said, the the information is very sporadic. I tried as the best as I can to like make it a more concise story. Um, I didn't want to focus too much on Attila. I wanted to focus more on the Huns so I could answer this question about Fair. the climate change. And yeah, any takeaways? No, I think you nailed it there in the end. I think that covered the point. 100% agree and just interesting to see. How climate could affect. Yeah, and then the ripple effect, Hans creating what's essentially now brocore <laughs> in the metal genre. So if it wasn't for climate dry summers in 1450s, we wouldn't have had the band Attila. Crazy. Crazy, but yeah, it's just, uh, I agree with you 100% on all the claims. Yeah, I think this is like one of our few episodes, like, I think we've done what, this is our second episode on how climate could change, could affect, could drastically change the world. Tambora, when the year without summer. It's always about climate. That's the most consistent factor, yeah. And now what we're doing, especially now that climate, there's a climatology where there's the ancient study of climate and that now we have the technology to study how past climates were. We're beginning to see how climate is actually a big... Coinciding with wars. And it's a big influence on a lot of major events that happen in the world. You Especially know in I mean? the mid-BC uh, centuries, yeah. Yeah, the Bronze Age, another time. Yeah. Uh, bad harvest, droughts, and then rebellions, and then sea peoples, where they affect of climate change. You know what I mean? Yeah, but and it's always these random barbarians that come out of nowhere. Trying to escape, trying to migrate escape. to better land. Yeah, they were just happy with where they were until they weren't. Until the land didn't fit them. Yep, exactly. So that's a lesson to be learned, guys. Exactly. And yeah, thank you for listening to today's episode. Yeah, guys, I'm, I'll let Kareem do his shtick <laughs> at the end. Yeah. So guys, thank you for listening to today's episode. <laughs> lurking, <laughs> lurking there. I never physically leave when you do your... Just metaphorically leave. Just so the audience can think. I could do fake footsteps. Okay, you can take coconuts in. Yeah, yeah. There are the Amos running his horse, <laughs> horse out of the... <laughs> I go away with my horse. Yeah, yeah, you're like, okay, guys. And you just like walk out. Yeah. Um, okay, guys, thank you for listening to today's episode. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed it. A call to action. Um, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok at a convo underscore B-T-W-E. Facebook, a conversation before the world ends. But usually Instagram is our best way of communication. TikTok as well. Yeah, we have a TikTok? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, shit. Yeah, but we have to keep up. Anyways, guys, I think that's all. Like, subscribe. Yeah, like, subscribe. Leave us a review. Yeah. Uh, Ratings as well. It helps with the algorithms. So far, we've been getting... uh, So far, I think we have a few ratings. Five stars. Oh, damn. Yeah, yeah. And two reviews. Damn. So we're getting there. Um, Yeah, guys, and that's all. So have a good night and we'll see you in two weeks. Take care.